for this stuff. Yeah. And we are live on YouTube though, where I'm much less of a dork, apparently. Yeah. For, but still for be all patient. Yeah. Us. But still be patient. So hi guys. Um obviously it's been an interesting day here. Um, a lot of us were watching the Derek uh, Joven trial. I had been reporting on it from Minneapolis. Um, if you want to introduce yourself? I'm Nancy Rommelman. You're here in Paloma Media. And with Hi, I'm Yael. Uh, I am a um, social media communications consultant for law enforcement. I was with the NYPD. Um, and Nancy and I were talking about um, law enforcement a lot, obviously. It's on everyone's mind and uh, what it's like to be on the front lines. And since I um, I know some people who are working or recently retired, we thought, what you know, what better way to talk about this and just let them speak in their own voices. Right. I mean, obviously people are talking about Chauvin right now and we will be talking about that. Um, one thing that I reported on that a lot of you guys already know is I reported for the better part of the year from Portland. So that is a story I am continuing to watch. And um, the past couple of weeks have been pretty bad in Portland. Um, you know, they are, you know, obviously there's been a lot of stuff going on Hey, Aaron, Aaron, we love you we too. Love you. Um, there's been a lot of stuff going on in the country, a lot of a, an incredible amount of, of, of gun violence, not just obviously amongst, you know, police and citizens, but just in general. I mean, shootings are up all over the country. And um, Portland, as I've written before, is an activist city. They're very, very ready to be inflamed by the latest thing that happens. And, and they have been. And there has been some incredible violence in the city. And there was also a shooting. Uh, in the city of a of a of a of a civilian who apparently was had some mental issues. It really didn't have to do with um, mm -hmm. protesting. So we 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 want to talk a little bit about that. What we think is going to happen in the city. Um, I I have some pretty strong feelings that things are not going to die down. Uh, maybe they're not going to get any worse. Um, and we invite as always, people to ask questions, whether you're in law enforcement, whether you're an activist, whether you just have, you know, questions that we might be able to elucidate. But we also have, and we're hoping the sound is going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you'll let us know if it isn't. We have a pretty special guest here uh, tonight um, named Brett Bownum. Brett Burnham uh, was a sergeant at the Portland Police Department. Um, he retired. Um, January 19th. Someone, some would say right in time. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll call him up. Uh, you might remember him. Um, he was uh, like a, a, in a viral photo a few years ago during Black Lives Matter protest where he uh, was seen uh, hugging a, a young uh, a young kid who was protesting. Um, Devante Hart. Yeah, who also a tragic story. Which, uh, which is an incredibly tragic, an incredibly tragic story, sort of right up my alley of the kind of stuff I write about. So Devante Hart was one of six um, adopted children by uh, two women. They were married. I believe they were married and they'd been mothers to these children, but there had been sort of some things that really weren't publicized. They were, they were seen as being extremely good parents, loving parents, adopting children, you know, that needed parents. And um, there was this photo of, of Devante being hugged by Brett and it was like a symbol of Portland and unity and Black Lives Matter. And then I can't remember the date exactly, but uh, they loaded the, the mothers loaded these kids into the car and drove them off a cliff and um, everybody was killed. And actually two of the bodies were never found. And I mm. think Devante was one of the bodies wow. that was not found. So things are complicated. Yeah. You know, people would like narratives to be simple because if narratives were simple, then we'd know exactly where we stand and there would never be a problem and you'd, you'd know and it'd be so clear. But things are not clear. And I think that we are much, much better off 
um, sort of exploring from different points of view super calmly what might not be, you know, the popular thing to say or the safe thing to say or or or, or talking to people that really have completely different views than us and trying mm -hmm. to understand. So yeah. one of the things we're doing because Yale has, uh, you know, a lot of um, connections with law enforcement, we are speaking to law enforcement. I reached out to several activists today to see if they would um, either talk to me or maybe tomorrow night something we're doing on Clubhouse we'll, we'll talk about a yeah. little later because I really want to when I saw that the Boys and Girls Club of Portland, again, had all their windows smashed uh, last night, I really do want to speak to some of the people involved in these actions. And I really want to understand how they th they think this will make things better for, you know, young boys and girls that need a place to go. Um, so here we are. Yeah. Nancy, I was wondering if you knew about the heart story. I absolutely know about the heart story because it's a very, uh, sorry, it's a very Nancy Rommelman story to write. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so let's put, should we get Brett yeah, on? Yeah, let's get um, Brett on the phone. Yeah, so, we, you know, I, I, I love talking to cops because I find them very, like, unfiltered and um, especially retired cops. Um, and, you know, kind of beyond the headlines, beyond the policy stuff, let's just hear um, what, yeah. the, what this guy And thinking. he's also willing to speak on the record. I've, I've interviewed a lot of officers lately, and they have to be anonymous for their for their work. They're not, you know, uh, authorized. Brett. Hey, Brett. Hello. Hi. I, Ella Nancy here, and we're also on uh, YouTube. All right. <laughs> um, guys, can someone tell me? I'm going to actually hold Brett. The phone is a little soft. Can someone here who's watching, let, can you hear Brett? Uh, let's get a little sound check here. Someone check in here in the comments so that we know that, you know, that his words are not being wasted because we're, you're a little soft on the phone, Brett. So, um, well, while we're waiting for somebody to comment, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are. Oh, they can hear. How, great. Great. How's this? Is that Perfect. any better? It's not you. It's us. <laughs> it's oh, not you, it's okay. me. We have a beautiful studio here, but <laughs> yeah. we don't know how to use it. No, it's so. the phone. It's your phone. Okay. All right, Brett, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, well, my name is Brett Barnum. Uh, I was a uh, police officer in the city of Portland for 27 and a half years in the state of Oregon altogether for about 30 and a half years. And I uh, chose a career in law enforcement starting back in uh, 1991 and uh the year i graduated college and uh just wanted to be involved in public service and uh having worked in portland especially through this last year with the pandemic and uh, a handful of uh protest and uh unrest community unrest uh i still think it was probably the best career that i could have ever chosen did the unrest have um, any influence on your, I know you said you you left the force uh, on January 19th, I believe. Did the unrest have any influence on your on your doing that? No, it's, uh, there are some retirement dates that uh, we'll just call them magical that end up working out uh, for long-term pension uh, benefits uh, on a particular day or month. And January happened to be a month and I wanted to stick around up until the inauguration, uh, I had had my fill of doing uh, protest events, and I knew that there would probably be another one on January 20th, so that's why I chose January 19th. And uh, for anything larger than 30 years in public service uh, in, in our retirement system in Oregon, uh, it's, it's not let's say profitable. It doesn't affect your pension at all. So a lot of our folks retire after 30 years, 
or sometimes before, and they'll go seek employment elsewhere so, um, just just to try something else. So that was the only determining factor is that it just happened to be uh, a, a date that worked out uh, to my benefit. Brett, were you uh, were you on the ground working the day after the election? I believe that was November 4th because I was out that night with um, all the people breaking glass downtown. Were you were you working that night? Yeah, and, and most of those nights where there was a substantial amount of civil unrest in Portland, uh, we were either called back, our days off were canceled, or we were held over late, depending on what shift you worked. Um, and so to specifically recall, without being able to look up on our scheduling system, which I don't have access to anymore, I, I'll tell you, 99.9%, yes, I was working that night. Yeah, I think when we were speaking earlier, you were you were speaking a little bit about how you know, like other departments in the country, um, and and somewhat impacted by the unrest, the you're you're down you're down manpower uh, in, in in the force. Yeah, and our our in, with the city of Portland uh, for a variety of different reasons, um, we have been uh, losing uh, officers. Good officers have been going to outside agencies, and uh, whether they're in the local metro area of Portland or whether they're actually in a whole different state. Um, but we had been in a slow decline uh, of losing officers over the last probably eight years. We had a short burst where uh, probably about six, seven years ago, about six years ago, where we actually started hiring and looking as though we were going to be back up to a acceptable staffing level. Uh, however, uh, with some changes in administration, uh, both at our city hall as well as within the police bureau, um, that took a, a drastic turn and went the other direction very quickly. And we started losing folks again. So you were saying something a little bit about, uh, Ted Wheeler, who people that don't know, Ted Wheeler is, uh, the mayor of Portland who, as far as I'm concerned, because I was reporting in Portland when I still lived there on Wheeler. And, um, it seemed to me, and I wrote about this several times for a reason that he, he very much was trying to scan the arena and make, the progressive element more happy and they had a got a pretty radical city council and i i think he painted himself into a corner and you were talking a little bit about how he has not um i mean what do you how do you think he's done in terms of trying to keep the city safe how about that for a broad question <laughs> uh, so uh i think he's jeopardized the city safety for sure um you know the the downtown business core business area along with actually several other areas uh, throughout the city of Portland that have had spot uh, periods of unrest, whether it's up in northeast Portland, whether it's up in north Portland uh, or far east Portland. Um, these business owners and, and homeowners, community members, uh, they adamantly talk and, you know, we're out patrolling and we're out talking with folks and, and we're still doing our job and we're still engaging the community. And they're talking how they just don't feel safe. Um, it, there's, there's policing and then there's political will. And you can't cross the two. And the, the problem with the city of Portland is it needs a city manager, uh, a true city manager and a true mayor. Um, the, the problem is that there are city council people and the mayor included who are in charge of specific bureaus. And as the person in charge of that bureau, they're the ultimate reporting person, meaning uh, that's who you have to report to. So our chief of police cannot police correctly, never has been able to, because 
the last person in line is somebody who's never been to a police academy, never really been to any significant police calls, doesn't have that policing experience, doesn't have that sort of engagement experience other than a political arena. And so you put that person in charge of a police bureau uh, where there's supposed to be about 950 authorized sworn officers, uh, and they begin making decisions based upon political reasons rather than true policing reasons. And for that, the city of Portland is not as safe as it once was. And case in point, we were having a very large uh, spike in gang violence as well as gun violence. Um, And part of that, that was keeping that, a lid on that was we had what was called a gun violence reduction team. And this was a group of very well-trained and very knowledgeable officers, probably about 20 with detectives in that group, 25 or so, that knew the players, they knew the problems, they knew the issues, and within a matter of probably two days, uh, because it didn't fit the political will, it was disbanded. Same thing happened in New York here with the instantaneously we had a rise, a dramatic rise in gun violence. I mean, as they have all over the country. One thing I just want to explain for listeners. So in Portland, the mayor is also the police commissioner. He's not the police chief, but he's the police commissioner. So when Brett is saying, you know, the person that is in charge of this has never been to police academy, is never policed, it's because it's the mayor. And we did a couple of years ago have um we had a mayor who actually had been a former police chief. So, you know, he maybe had a little, but he was pretty ineffectual. So I think Portland has had a string of pretty ineffectual mayors. And my, my theory on that is because, you know, Portland was a blue dot in a red sea. So there was a tension that kept things sort of, sort of in balance. So like if there was ineffectual leadership in Portland, it was like, well, uh, that's okay because people were pretty centrist. But then you had this giant influx, especially of young people to Portland. It became much more populated, much more blue, as does the local government. And so sort of axiomatically, policing has been considered sort of the enemy, maybe not axiomatically, but it has been considered not just by maybe Ted Wheeler, because as you said, he was kind of a narcissist as far as you were concerned, but by the city council. The city council has been very, very, I mean, anti-policing. They're the ones that took the money from the gun violence reduction team. And now Ted Wheeler, what is he doing? He's now asking for money back. And he's also trying to federalize certain local officers so they can actually make arrests and perhaps make them stick because the local DA who is elected just, you know, 91% of any protest-related crimes do go unprosecuted. So there's no consequence in the city for these continual nights of violence. And, I mean, I, I am not surprised. You were, If you want to maybe tell that story you were telling us earlier about that one officer trying to take someone down with... So, so yeah, I mean, we, we talk about systemic racism. We talk about, you know, systemic this, systemic that. Well, in, within inside the police organization, you know, there's a lack or a systemic lack of uh, participation. Uh, where once, when I first was hired, and, and let, me, let me categorize this. Uh, I started my career in the midst of Rodney King, and I ended in the midst of George Floyd. I had two terrible bookends in the middle of a great career. Uh, It doesn't mean 
that people can't learn from these things. We learned a lot from Rodney King. Uh, sure. The, the sure. policing world did. But, but what happens now is that where once back in the early 90s, um, we had a significant gang problem and we went out and addressed it and we were proactive. There is no proactive policing whatsoever anymore. These The officers that are out there, one, partly because there isn't enough staffing. They're barely filling districts every day. And then the minute a, a significant incident happens, it drains all the districts to go deal with one incident. Um, and that's for a protracted period of time, three to four hours. So where once we used to be proactive, now everything is retroactive to the point where it's actually getting dangerous for the the officers. Um, a story was given to me after I left where there's actually an investigation has been started uh, internally, and it, it is not started by the community, uh, by city council. It started internally by our own police officers who were dissatisfied with the performance of our own officers. And, and that's something that viewers really need to understand is that, you know, with all of this uh, chauvin talk and, and everything else, I, I think that the public, the community can see that officers step forward to report their own when, when there's something bad happening. And so in an incident that recently happened in Portland, there was one officer who was struggling with a suspect uh, by himself. And as he got done and got this person into custody and used the minimal amount of force necessary to take this person into custody, he looks around and he starts counting. He goes one, two, three, four, five. And I believe it was up to five other officers who were standing around just watching. And he looks at him and he goes, really guys, really? I'm struggling with somebody. I may have had to use a higher level of force because I wasn't able to overcome this person's resistance to me. And where if you would have helped me, we could have used less force perhaps, and everybody would have been safer. And I wouldn't, that, that officer would not have been jeopardized uh, as far as their own personal safety. And, and so there is, there is some, my understanding, some sanctions and some perhaps uh, discipline to those officers that are just standing around. And that that's what we've now trained our police to do. That's acceptable. And that's, in my terms, not acceptable. The community can't have that. They can't have an officer who just fills a car seat. Uh, they need to have an officer who's engaged, who's so protecting them and, and also looking out to help stop crime that might be happening not just sitting in their car waiting for the next call to happen. Well, this is when I was in Minneapolis a couple of weeks ago. I spoke with several officers and they, they, you know, my question was, you know, what's happening now? What are, you know, they're down almost 25%, whether it's people that have taken early retirement or people that are on PTSD leave. And um, there, there are, there's not enough hands on deck to even answer 911 calls. And they are like basically not, interacting because they are afraid either a if they wind up shooting someone especially someone who is of color the city's going to burn or they're going to get fired and so they're not they're literally doing sort of the minimum which is terrible this is like if you're you know 
It's not why people join the police. It's department. not why people join the police department. And you know, I am of the mind, just like I'm of the mind that like most chefs go into chef school because they want to be good cooks, right? Or you want to be a writer. So you go because you want to be a good writer. I think most, you know, law enforcement, they go into law enforcement because they want to do a good job. Yes, of course, there are just like there's shitty chefs and shitty whatever, there will be shitty cops. But most people are not in there for that. And that they, in this particular environment, can't do the job that they've, you know, signed up for is is pretty tragic for everyone, including the community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you have a community that's hungry and they come to the chef to make them a meal, but the chef has no tools, has no food. How's, how are they supposed to eat? How are they supposed to feed themselves? How are they supposed to be nourished? And and that's what's happening in policing right now. And that's what's happening. It's it's a byproduct of that is going to happen to the community. If, if you don't supply your officers with one support and, and trust that your internal processes will take care of themselves correctly, right? That if, if somebody does do wrong, that they're held accountable, but if you don't supply them with the tools, with the resources, and with the adequate staffing, they're not going to be engaging. They're not going to be making that meal for the community. And and it's the community is going to starve. And so with as much, there are so many good people in Portland, so many good people in Portland. And we have about 200 folks that seem to come out nightly. Right. Um, and causes damage, right. causes havoc. And and it's sometimes, oh, it's right at the onset of an incident. And we don't even know what the facts of the incident are yet. Yep. And and there's, there's a very snap rush to judgment. And it's just like anything else. There was a process. The process served itself today. And a verdict was handed down. And there were three guilty verdicts handed down but the process the justice system did its job right and and so just as as anything else uh you have to let the processes work their way out in order for to find out what the final income and some or the outcome is and sometimes that takes a little bit of time and we need folks to be patient so uh, I'll play devil's advocate here for a minute since I was on the ground a lot with these Portland protesters and they're like, you know, all cops are bastards, fuck the police, defund the police. Um, and so I, I can imagine someone here is not here, maybe listening, but uh, saying, well, yeah, well, we I'm glad I'm super glad that there are too few cops and I'm super glad that, you know, they can't do their jobs because that's what we want. We don't trust the way they've done their jobs in the past. And they've done a terrible job because they're concentrating on the, you know, I, I've said this, you know, you know, we don't report the good things that cops do. You report the bad things, just like everything else. You report, you know, if it bleed, bleed, bleh, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, so, you know, what do you say to the people that are like, great, I'm super glad that the Portland Police Department is just like fleeing. What do you what do you say to them? So I would say that's more of a vocal minority rather okay. than the silent majority. And um, overall, I think the silent majority needs to step forward. Yeah. Um, yes. there, there, there is a point in time where people have to <clears throat> come out from under, under their covers and they've got to start showing their face. And if they truly want crime prevention, policing, 
if they truly want these things in their community and a level of safety, then they need to actually be more vocal than they are right now in a positive manner, of course. But I I get it. And, and you know what, it's, it's really easy to sit back and go, okay, be careful what you wish for. Right. Um, Because they'll one day become a victim and they'll one day want the police help because it will be bad enough right now. They might be able to, take a broken car window and go, I'm not calling the police. There's no reason for me to call the police. Nothing they're going to do for me. And they may do that. But one day they may get physically assaulted to a point where they have to go to the hospital and they go, I need this person caught. I don't have the resources, the means, and they're going to need the police and they're not going to be available. Well, this happened the other day. There was a video uh, online of someone in, I, I don't know exactly where it was in Portland, might have even not been in Portland, it was definitely in Oregon. Oregon, yeah. And it was a dude who, you know, got out of his or was standing by his truck and he had did a shotgun. I don't yeah. know what he had. Just a dude, an older, like white dude, shot his gun in the air. And I guess he was around some activists, I guess. You couldn't really see them. They were filming it. But they were screaming, Oh my God, somebody called the police. And it was like, Well, wait a minute. Like, <laughs> aren't you the ones that don't want them to call mm-hmm. the police? But of course, we are conditions, you know whatever the system that we've created, we are conditioned to call the police when there's, you know, something like this, when we're frightened, when there's danger. And, you know, even someone that, you know, is marching for 200 nights in a row saying, fuck the police, when they're confronted with someone shooting a gun, they say, call the police. And and Brett, the day-to-day work at the end of the day in Portland is not, I mean, the protests are one thing, but there's, there's regular jobs that you get, right? Like burglaries, domestic violence. What, what, what kind of level of, of, of policing of service um, are, are the people of Portland getting right now when when all the, the the resources and the attention and the political will is is focused on uh, you know the the national stage so to speak. Well, right now uh, our, the way our call system works is calls are prioritized one to seven, priority one to priority seven, seven being the lowest, one being the highest would be a person on person crime or an incident happening now with with a potential catastrophic event tied to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as it stands right now, oftentimes what happens is the field supervisors, they will tell the dispatchers, Fairly quickly, once the calls start coming in, you know, about 10, 11 a.m., and they stay pretty consistent throughout the day, and the call load stays consistent until about 2 a.m., they'll tell the dispatchers we're on ones through threes only, meaning priority one, two, and three only. So if I call, yeah. And so those lower-level crimes, people will sit and wait eight, ten hours for a police officer to respond. That has never happened in, in that I could remember except for in the last couple of years. And that's after 30 years of doing police work. And that's not a good product for us to deliver to our community members. That's not a fair product. And so these people are calling us because they have been victimized or they have been harmed or they have a significant issue, which needs to, which is important to them, which needs to be addressed. And they don't have any other resources or any other thought process on how to address it other than calling 911 or our non-emergency number. And, and they expect us to come out and we should be going out. We should be getting out there, but we can't because there are not enough resources. Right. And we have, we have one city council person, Joanne Harsty, who, who refuses 
who refuses to acknowledge it. And she has come up with this alternate idea about taking certain certain calls off our call load. She has spent, I can't, I, I don't know the exact number, but she has gotten several hundred thousands of Portland taxpayer dollars to put together this program. It hasn't even really been implemented yet. And it's been probably about a year and a half now since since this funding started. There's nothing to show for it. And it, it just, people have advised her and told her, this is not going to work because what's going to happen is she wants to send these people to people with mental health crises um, and they're they're kind of a, a rapid response team for folks with mental health issues. Right. Well, as we quickly saw in Seattle about eight, nine months ago, they had a program like this. Guess what happened? That mental health professional was killed, was stabbed to death Jeez. because they're unarmed. They're not prepared. And, and what they do have is an innate ability, just as a lot of police officers do, to de-escalate, but they don't have an ability to protect themselves. And so now you've tied up resources, again, police resources, to go deal with now a homicide with a mentally ill person. And so um, it's, it's one of these situations where, as you just said a few minutes ago, you know, people will call those people who don't want 911, i.e. Joanne Hardesty, she was the first one to call 911 when she felt she was being treated unfairly because an Uber driver mm -hmm. asked her to step out of the car because she wouldn't put a mask on or roll down the windows. Yeah, and because he picked her up at the wrong entrance or something. I mean, it was so yeah. it was so absurd. It was so that, trivial. However, I know. that minor trivial incident caused her to say, I'm calling the police. Right. Because she's and, also and showing her power. Said, yeah. That's not what we're yeah. going to do for you. Get out of the car. Oh, right. And uh, which, ex which is exactly what they should have done at that point. It's like if I call them and say, my oven's too hot. It's like, well, lady, <laughs> turn down the freaking oven. Like, this is not this is not our responsibility. But basically, if you're if you're in Portland now and your your car gets broken into your business or your somebody's, you know, your house getting broken into, but the perpetrator left, you're basically fucked. Like, uh, excuse my language, but you're not you're not going to get the police service that you deserve. You're as a not resident. a priority. No, if, if that person is not in your house and you physically know and you tell the dispatcher, no, I think they're gone or I saw I saw the dark shadow walking off. OK, we'll send an officer out. You won't get an officer perhaps up to an hour, maybe an hour and a half, two hours. That person's been traumatized mm -hmm. as, as, a, as a long term officer and, and gone to many burglary calls and have seen many people who have been victims of this. They're traumatized. They have never experienced an intruder in their home, their domain, their place of safety. And now they've had somebody walking through their house, whether they were mentally ill, a transient, whatever. It's still an unknown yeah. person. It's very disturbing. And they want somebody to tell them it's all right. We're going to do our best to find them. But they want them there now because everybody that's close to them in their circle is already with them at their house. They need that external piece to tell them it's going to be okay. Or let me get some forensics going. You know, let me get our criminalists out here to, to, to find some fingerprints or let's let me, let me go to knock on your neighbor's doors to see if there's videos, surveillance from ring cameras, from, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, different security systems to see if we can get an idea on who this person is. Let me get an officer there to get a better description 
so that we can get more officers there to patrol the area to see who doesn't fit in that neighborhood right now. I, I, and maybe maybe we'll find that person. I may be but we giving, can't we can't do that anymore. I may be giving the black block and Antifa like the the what you said the two hundred that come out every night or six hundred or whatever it is because I you know we've seen them in various numbers. I may be giving them too much credit, but. One thing that I had happened this summer after um, that guy had been pulled out of his pickup truck downtown and kicked in the head. I was out the next night with some black block kids and one of them said, you know, the police should have been there. And I said, you know, the thing is that the police are out chasing you guys every night and stopping you from burning down the police union or this particular area or breaking into someone's house or whatever it is. So, you know, if we've got 100 officers over here, that's 100 officers that can't be downtown protecting that guy. And he said to me, well, they should still be down there. And I wonder, I may be giving them, again, too much credit, but I wonder if one of the um, one of the goals of the people that continue to protest every night, uh, besides just like that nightly spurt of relief that comes with breaking stuff and setting things on fire, is to make the police look bad. Like you, they will, they will take up your time and your energy and call you to certain locations so that Mrs. Smith out in Gresham or wherever in East Portland can't get her break in taken care of. So the police continue to look bad. And then they're hoping like, well, see, we're against the police. Now Mrs. Smith is going to be against the police too, because they can't service her. Do you think that that's part of their agenda? If, if it is, um, it might have served a purpose for the first 90 days. Now, the again, the silent majority, they're they're seeing right through this and they see exactly what's happening. And yes. they know why we're they know why we're taxed. They know exactly why. They come downtown, they've seen all the board ups. They can't go to their favorite restaurants or don't want to. They don't want to ride our light rail train because it's dangerous at certain times of the day to ride it in through downtown uh, because these riots might be happening. Uh, you know, the folks that live up in North Portland that near the, the union office, you know, typically I would say that they're more on the left-leaning side. Um, they, they would probably, uh, folks in that area uh, are good people. I've, I've worked those neighborhoods a ton throughout my career, uh, and I enjoy getting to know those parts of the, the community. But I would also say that at the beginning, they were probably, there were a handful of those folks that were downtown. And they yeah. were either watching, spectating, you know, cheering on, maybe not specifically engaging, um, but they were interested. Uh, and it probably felt right to them. I don't think that it feels right to them now. I, I, 100%. I you know, and that's just my speculation on it. I, I absolutely do not speak for, for that larger part of the community in that part of the region or or in different parts of portland however by this point if they really uh i do have several friends that do live in portland from college from high school and whatnot and i've i've talked to them and they're done with it they're done with That's it right. and i've had a ton of friends that they're moving they're leaving no. And they're they're moving to the suburbs. That's right. And and part of the reason they're moving to the suburbs is because home prices are astronomical in Oregon right now. Um, there are still people that want to move into Portland, um, and they can get rid of their house with a great profit fairly quickly, and they can go move to the suburbs where they don't have to listen to the nightly violence. We have officers that live in some of these areas that can hear the loudspeakers of the PA. I have I had one officer that 
worked for me directly, who lived fairly close to her union office, and he, he would show up in the morning for roll call, and he'd go, yeah, I was up till 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, to hear that lawn speaker all night. And, you know, I mean, and if that's him, I can't imagine what the other community members who don't understand what's going on, what they're feeling like. Well, Why does this always have to happen in my neighborhood? I wrote about the um, sort of the, the when they were setting the police union on fire and then they ran down North Denver and they set the picnic tables on fire. You know, that nice little walking district that that the um, business owners had um, created. And I spoke with a lot of people in the neighborhood who were like, this is unacceptable. However, some of their neighbors at the time, this was in August, I think, were like, no, we support these young people. You know, we 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 support them and, um, you know, go young people go. Well, three months later, it was kind of like, you know, maybe not go young people go because we're really tired of this every night. And now we're also tired of you, you know, marching down our streets and shining lights in our windows. And I think, and I've written this uh, one gazillion times, you know, if 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 these if the activists doing this every night were busting a new move or building something, then maybe the community would be interested. But it is literally the same thing every night. And the community's like, well, I kind of supported you because I thought you had a message, but in fact, your message seems to stop at set fire, break window, throw poo. Like there is no, there's no next step here. We've seen it now literally almost every single night for a year. It's like, we can't support this anymore. You're not actually building any sort of new utopia. You're just destroying what is here. And I think the community is done. I mean, that's my impression. Um, I don't see there's a lot of support for it anymore in Portland. And, and the, the greater part of this, I have a couple of very, very good friends that operate restaurants in downtown Portland that have been there for four to five decades and they've been family owned forever. Not only did COVID just right. absolutely obliterate them and they weren't set up for takeout and they had a retool right. for takeout right. stuff. Um, the, once they finally started getting reopened and these protests continued to happen or even before COVID when protests were happening, um, I would get phone calls. Hey, is there a protest tonight? Is there, you know, what, what do we know? I gotta be able to tell my staff. And a handful of them have already moved. They're done. They're gone. They've closed up shop. We had one very good restaurant here in Portland who owned like six or seven different restaurants. Who's that? He closed. He closed everything. Um, I, I, I read the. I know I a lot the of the restaurants. And he yeah. had yeah. the one very nice restaurant there at Sixth and Clay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Six in Columbia, there was one of his restaurants, and he was like, I can't do it. Yeah. I, I don't know you what I'm going to come to, and I can't be pulled nine different directions um, for for causes when they're destroying my way of life. I have to get back into something that will actually, you know, albeit I'm, I'm a supporter, and I don't agree with a lot of the stuff that's going on, you know, as far as policing and everything else, but I, I can't have these antics happen every night. Um, another friend of mine, his family owns the standard building downtown and they just two, two or three nights ago, I guess it was Friday night, this last Friday, uh, another $20,000 worth of windows broken this that is, they have to repair. This is the thing. How mm -hmm. many times can you get your windows broken and you're trying to do business and you're trying to like support employees. And it's like, I, I cannot do this every three days. 
Like you just at a certain point, you just can't pay for it anymore. And and what is it for? It really is. It's we called it Groundhog Night, right? Is that Groundhog Day? Groundhog Night? It's like Groundhog's Day. It's yes. like, but it's every night. It's every night. It's the same thing. And I think, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And we won't hold you too much longer. I mean, it does. I mean, where does it come from? Where? So where? Where do you think the change? How? Obviously, the people need to speak. The people need to say, no more. We are not doing this anymore. Do you think that the do you think that the leadership in Portland is going to listen? And I, I think I think Ted Wheeler already, I mean, he's already changed his tune from last summer. So so here's here's with here's my my two cents with Ted Wheeler. Um and and I know him very innately. I, I mentioned to you earlier that before he was mayor, uh, he and I and another mutual friend all sat down and he asked me about the police bureau. He was doing his research and his homework on the city before he became mayor. Uh, so I had a personal relationship, friendship with him um, that was very different in the sense that when I was in uniform at work, it was business. He was the police commissioner uh, away from work. I'd have a cup of coffee with him and we'd chat and he would pick my brain. And there's lots of things that I tried to steer him towards saying, I don't think that's a good idea. And here's why I always gave him reasons why. And I always gave him options because it doesn't do anybody any good, especially over 30 years of policing that if you just tell somebody no, but you don't tell them what their options are, they can't digest that. So you have to be able to come up with options. So I gave him plenty of options and a reason why that, that his, his ideas or his thoughts were probably not going down the right path. And there were a variety of things along the way, you know, the last five, six, seven years that he's been, been around um, doing this, that it just hasn't, it hasn't worked out. Now, what I have noticed is that he doesn't like to listen, um, which, is, which is too bad for him. Because there are people, actually leaders within our police organization, who have tried to communicate emphatically with them about the right thing to do. They think that they're starting to, to, to gain ground, and then the political will swings the other way. And everything that they worked hard at is gone. And, and so the inconsistencies that he has, he's created himself. And it's now to a point where... Unless he just steps forward and say, listen, I've made several mistakes along the way. We need to correct this problem. It has gotten too out of hand. And part of that is, uh, part of the other part of that is Mike Schmidt, our DA. Without, without being Sorry. able to prosecute people for crimes, it's why wouldn't a protester go down? Why wouldn't 200 you? people go down, break windows. I mean, nothing's going to happen to them. No. It's a revolving nothing, door. Nothing's going to happen to him. There's no accountability for the actions of folks who are causing violence and doing violence to protest violence. And, yeah. and so there's there's no recourse. And so these businesses, they're all moving out. And so you're going to be left with a bunch of boarded up buildings. Yep. And eerily so, Portland is going to be the next Detroit. Ugh. And and you not only absolutely going to be the next Detroit. And my understanding, and and I have not been to Detroit, so I'm I'm not bad talking Detroit. But my understanding is Detroit has revitalized itself tremendously from ten years ago. It has. So 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 can Portland do that? 
Yeah, well, it takes they time. absolutely yeah. can. And it but absolutely... We are, we're set back a decade or more right now, but yep. until we get some sort of bite with prosecution that sticks to folks to curb their behavior, nothing's going to change. I, but we're getting... Um, First of all, we're, we're getting a lot of great comments on, on YouTube, which is really nice, and people are, are really interested in what you have to say. Um, will, will you join us um, tomorrow if we do a, a Clubhouse chat and we can have some people ask questions? Sure, sure. I'd be more than happy to join. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second when we let Brett go. But um, I will say, yeah, you know, Portland um, had a real interesting and fast little renaissance there from about 2000 to about, 2016, it really was like, it was like a young colt just like running into the future. And it has just completely stumbled and broken both, you know, four legs. And um, you're not only losing the businesses, you're losing the brain trust and you're losing the talent. It's sort of like, you know, what happened in the Bay Area with a, you know, an Elon Musk saying like, well, you don't want me here? I'll, I'll ditch, you know, I'm going to Texas. Um, we, we've had a lot of people that just said, you know, you're, you're not making it I don't want to put my energies and my finances here anymore because um, because there's no point. I, I I have to deal with a broken window every, you know, three weeks or or being whatever. Um, Brett, thank you, thank you, thank you so much um, for you. talking to us, and we will uh we'll we'll be in touch and tell you how we can um hook up tomorrow. That sounds wonderful. Okay, have thanks, a great thanks, Brett. Thank safe. you. Wow. Nancy deserves an award for holding her arm. I up know. Like that. Look, hold on. Where's my big muscle now <laughs> here? Um, so uh that was I interesting and I I'm re it's really edifying to see like, you know, the the Derek Chauvin trial is the story of the night. And we know that, and we were both watching it and live tweeting it and everything. Um, but you know, my brain sort of goes to Portland and was yeah. interested in, in in hearing about that. But it's a good reflection, I think, of of you know, not all police officers think the same, but you know, there's definitely something to be said about kind of hearing what it's like with the people who actually have to clean up the, the pieces, right? So at the end of the day, there are people beyond the politics who have to go and they have to answer the 911 calls and they have to stand the front line. And, you know, they're, they're being pulled in a million directions. And, and we do expect the level of service from them. So what is this doing to them, what is this doing to the level of policing that we're we're experiencing? And we started this um, this uh, podcast by saying, like, you know, if everything was super easy, if everything was black or white, you could understand everything. And oh, that, wouldn't that be super we would need police if everything we would, was, would, But yeah. that's not the way it is. And, mm -hmm. you know, the stories we've been telling ourselves this year, you know, uh, where, you know, people want to defund the police or people are anti-activist. It's complicated. And I think we do need to listen to other people. That's what we're going to be doing. And, and in that vein, um, just sent Nancy a DM about the change in response to the verdict compared to the video. Great. I will look at that DM. <laughs> um, so last week, last Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern time, which we're going to be doing again tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern time, uh, Yale and I had a clubhouse. Um, yeah, it was kind of like ad hoc and we just decided to sort of talk to um, some officers and also we had some, and journalists, you know, and sometimes these people are at, at loggerheads. Anyway, it turned out to be such an interesting and such a civil conversation, which <laughs> Clubhouse really kind of can be. I've never been in a yelly Clubhouse. Someone said they've been in Clubhouses yeah, where people have yelled. I have clubhouse not. as, you know, when I hear about a new social media channel, my first reaction is like, oh, I don't need another social media. But there's something very intimate about Clubhouse. It is. Um, 
you use your real name uh, and, and it's kind of like a like an audio conference call in a way. And we had a few uh, police officers. We had a few uh, police executives, journalists, some journalists, and, yep. and people were just, you know, nobody was grandstanding. Nobody was reading off talking points. No, there are no teleprompters. It was very uh, real, authentic talk. I think we got some really nice feedback on Twitter from people saying, you know, it was the first time they heard just policing being discussed very authentically. And and I think that's what what people need to hear. And it will it will, you know. You'll, come, you'll leave with more questions than answers. And I think that, I mean, for me, it's always been my uh, my objective or just my desire to have, you know, people talking to each other and be parts of these conversations. So, okay, tomorrow night, Clubhouse, Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you're not on Clubhouse uh, and you have an iPhone, send me a DM or yeah, 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 a DM. Yeah, send me. We have a, and invites. We've got some invites we can give you. You do need an iPhone. I use an old iPad because I don't have an iPhone. Yeah, if Nancy can do it with an Android off an old iPad, everybody That's can right. figure it out. Ah, with one little finger. Um, I want to thank you guys for joining us here at Polo Media tonight. And... Our first Facebook Live, and I'm gonna. Oh, and of course, we're going to. No, we're going to decline that call. <laughs> it's my mother calling. Uh, I see. I've got my uh, a cousin of mine and my old friend Ray Palestino <laughs> watching on Facebook. Hi, guys. Thank you. It's my first yeah, Facebook we're Live. We're trying to get. We're trying she's, to get. Um, she's dragging me into Facebook again. I know. I, so, I feel um, bad, but but you know, it's we okay. want to we want to get to new people. We know a lot of you people. I think Nancy yeah. knows a lot of you people. Facebook, you know, is, is the biggest platform in the world. So. Um, follow Nancy on Facebook, Nancy.Romelman. Yeah, and follow us each on Twitter. I'm uh, Nancy Rom, N-A-N-C-Y-R-O-M-M on uh, on Twitter. I'm yeah, LBT. I tweet a lot about police and puppies. So, yeah. you know, like, what's not to like, right? Yeah. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. And um, let us know if you want to join us on Clubhouse tomorrow night or just, just show up. Okay, bye. bye. It's one goodbye. And one goodbye. And then the second. Thanks, guys.